Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We're rounding out our summer in left field. This is the last episode, isn't it? This is the week of in-service. We will do a summer recap, I right. think, next week. So that one yep. will be a little different, Where though. we're just going to talk about, hey, this is the summer. We all spoke at places <laughs> and traveled places mm-hmm. and kind of just, uh, you know, a recap of what we have, where we've been, what we've done, what we've learned, what we've read, all that good stuff. Um, and so welcome to the this episode. Is it 94? 94. Yep. Dang. We're getting really close to a hundo. I know. I'm excited for a hundo. With that being said, we're going to do something new today to open our podcast. We're going to do the first installment. Oh, boy. Of Thinklings Trivia. Oh, boy. Oh, that was fast. Okay, let's do it. I'm not going to participate. You guys are going to participate. Okay. Which we, we did this for Thanksgiving. We, we did. That little quiz. I remember that, yeah. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to do one, maybe two questions. Okay. And how this is going to work is uh, we'll keep we'll keep track of points. We'll just have like a running total of who's winning. Maybe in the future, there'll be something like the person who wins gets to do something or whatever, whatever. Um, maybe that's the person who says books and business in the episode or whatever. Um, so, Thinkling's trivia, the category is C.S. Lewis. The category is C.S. Lewis. In what year... Did C.S. Lewis publish his first work? In what year did C.S. Lewis publish his first work? So they, have, they both have a pen and a paper, and uh, they're going to write down a year. Don't show it to each other. Don't show it to each other. Okay. You got, everyone has answers? Yep, got it. Okay, reveal your answers. So hold them up for me or whatever. So Andy says... 1931, 1931 Spirits and Bondage. And Tim says 1936. I'm impressed. I think I was pretty good. You were. For, seriously. That's not you bad. actually might be right. I actually don't know this at oh, all. I don't I'm know. making so, a guess. Now, I could just get like... I think know, it's actually earlier than that. So I just Googled it. Okay. Because I, I, you're right, Uh-oh. Andy, that the first work, and it's, this is where it's kind of a trick question, because I don't think he published it under his own name. And Lewis Clerk. No, 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 no. It was... Uh, yeah, it was a different name. Under the pseudonym... Clive Hamilton. Yeah, that's right. And so what year did he publish his, C.S. Lewis publish? Well, you could, you know, whoa, he didn't publish Mm -hmm. it as C.S. Lewis, but it was him. It was Spirits in Bondage, a cycle of lyrics, which is poetry. And the year was, according to Google, 1919. See, I thought it was earlier because it was after the war. And after he'd returned, but I didn't know how quickly after the war it was. Yeah. So neither of you were right, but Andy was closer. So we're going to give the win <clears throat> to Andy. What was his yeah. next book published? Uh, that's a great question. I really didn't think he had written he, anything so on Dimer, Dimer was next, and both of those are his dark period. So what it says is his first prose work. This is from Britannica, Encyclopedia oh, Britannica. His first in... prose work to be published Parentheses, except for some early scholarly articles. So if you track right. the articles, that's probably where mm-hmm. Dimer fits in. Uh, was the Pilgrim's Regress an allegorical apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism in 
1933. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. That's more what I was thinking. An account of his search to find the source of the longings he experienced from his early years. I thought it was the 30s that was his real, yeah. his first. And then I, I know he gets, you know, we don't touch Narnia until like the late 40s or yeah. the 50s era. Right. Well, his in his early works, Dimer, Spirits and Bondage, they're they're dark. they're dark, and also in in. Uh, Come on, the 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 biography that we read for my class, the class I can't think of the guy's name now. McGrath. Yeah, McGrath. He points out that there's like a lot of stuff going on in Lewis's life. That's Alistair McGrath. Yeah. If you're listening to this, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Oh, we would love to have you on, Alistair. He is Please. definitely not Next. On this podcast. So yeah, first installment of Thinkling's trivia. Andy is the champion. He wins. Good job, Andy. So <sighs> I think. Uh, t- Typically, when I open the podcast and I say we have some Thinklings business to tend to, Tim says books and business. But I think now that Andy has won the first trivia, I think he, you have the right to say it or to cede it to Tim. I think I'm going to cede it out of grace okay. and goodness. So Tim will still say it. So with Thinklings trivia being finished, we do have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about a book. All right, so this week we're going to talk about Strange New World by Carl Truman. This is his, Tim, would you call it his layman's edition or just a more popular level version of his rise in the trunk? Condensed, that's a better way to say it, because it's not easy per se. I wouldn't say this is easy. I didn't read it. It's, It's wonderful. It's so good. But he's condensed his rise and triumph of the modern self. I do think it's probably a bit simplified. Um, I enjoyed it. Now here, here's the story behind this. I read this back. Uh, I had jury duty one week this summer and I showed up and it was going to be a murder trial and I didn't end up getting picked, but I had to spend two full days in the courthouse. And so I ended up when I wasn't in the room under, uh, when they were doing voir dire, which is where you have to answer questions. And I I would read this and it was fascinating because the book is all about what has happened in the last 50 to a hundred years that's built on what happened the previous hundred years. And it's a summary of key thinkers like Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, um, Rousseau, Wollstonecraft. Um, I know there's a, a, a ton of them in here. And so what I think is the real value of the book is he, he starts off by talking about the shift. Essentially he's not saying this, the shift from, Modernism to postmodernism. Postmodernism is all about the self. It's about you. It's all you have left. He spends a, a considerable amount of time talking about Nietzsche. I love Nietzsche. I'm like a, I really want to like do a deep dive into Nietzsche. Not because I think he's good, but I think he's very um, revealing of our current culture. So he does a really good job handling those big thinkers and those deep issues. And he ties together why following after the concept of expressive individualism why we end up with gender politics, identity politics, uh, why morality has decayed, why objectivity and relativism, why all that stuff has happened. And I love this book. It is an excellent book. I would highly recommend it for a number of reasons. Number one, if you're currently in full-time ministry and you're a pastor and you haven't read this, if you don't want to attack the beast, the tome, the rise and triumph of the modern self, get this book. It's excellent. But I'm reading this so that I then I'm going to plan to read the other one too. Um, but if you want to understand what's going on in culture, it's really good. I was I was messaging with another pastor who's read this, and he was saying how he really likes Truman's answers better than some other 
people who are critiquing culture right now. Truman in this book almost gives you a way forward at the end. He, he sort of talks yeah. about how Christians have been complicit in this in ways yeah. that perhaps they don't know. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that's a very helpful section, but even just the explanatory part of it, I grew up in a public school in Urbandale, Iowa, and I saw myself in here, mm. not realizing that I, Dr. Newman, a former counseling professor, now a missionary, um, to, in Baptist Midmissions, Safe Haven Ministries, he used to make an analogy in class that you, someone would say like, well, why do people do that? And one of his answers is you breathe the cultural air. And Truman says this about fish and water. He says, fish don't ever think about the water they're swimming in. They hardly ever think about it. But a person trying to understand fish needs to think about water. And so he says, we live in a culture where we are essentially like fish and we don't realize we're in this water because we haven't thought about it. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what this book is helping you to do. It's helping you to think about either the cultural air analogy or the water we swim in analogy of culture today. And the really great part is that you usually think of the moral breakdown in our culture being because we uh, legalized divorce and then we legalized same-sex marriage and then we legalized transgender rights. He says that is the result of changes that have taken place, mm -hmm. but that is not the main thing. It's actually a generation or a century before that when we gave authority to our individual experience rather than our external truth. And so I just can't recommend this book enough. I'm going to give it a nine on the Thinkly's Goodness Scale. And if you have a, a group of friends or you read books, this is a great option. I will say I have been in multiple classes in our seminary where these discussions come up mm. gender issues sexuality issues and on multiple occasions have uh, truman's books come up and it, i i was diligent it came up in one of my doctoral classes has anyone read the rise and triumph of the modern self and i think i was the only one in there who had read it and i mean to, to be fair like my reading of it was it's cumbersome. Yeah, it and so, is. Like, it was a, and that's why he made this one. Yeah. And so I was like, hey, you know, I know these guys who just talked about this on a podcast. And uh, actually, uh, you can walk right over to the bookstore and, and get Strange New World. And uh, mm. it was like just a couple of weeks after you had talked Talk about, about it. it. And so, um, and I know Greg, uh, Pastor Greg Gaznell, yeah. he messaged me or messaged, I can't remember if it was us or me, but he uh, that week it released was like, look what I'm reading. You know, it was a cool timing thing. But mm -hmm. Yeah. Strange New World is, I think it easy. It, it's the ceiling isn't as high because you're not going to go. You're mm -hmm. not, you're not going as far. It's not as complex. So the ceiling is a little lower, mm -hmm. but the floor is higher. So yes. Like it, it's more accessible. Yeah. It's really good. And that's why I think it's a, a they're, they're companions. Yeah. They're brothers and sisters, but you might start with strange new world. Yeah. And I knew that about myself. I knew I'm going to, I love this stuff. I love all these. I've read bits about all these, but I know that like, for me, I've learned start low, master low, and then it's way easier to go high. If I start at the top, I get confused. And so for me, I was excited to start the layman's version. So just a, version. to the reader, uh, a lot of times that's just a good way to begin research, especially on yes. a topic you're not very familiar with. The, the technical term is called a tertiary source. It's just a popular level source like a magazine or um, uh, a Wikipedia article. Okay, some, something along those lines could even just be very elementary and introduce you to some of the issues. And then you just start going down that ladder. 
And Strange New World is a, obviously a few steps above those yeah. kind of sources. Well, I would say also that it's it's really, I think, well-written because I've read Wikipedia articles to get myself located in something, and it's very cumbersome and hard to follow. But this, he writes it, and I think he had the reader in mind a lot. It, it's It's full of illustrations that are not too long, but drive the point home in a way you understand it. So where is Truman? Where, Grove City College. Grove City, mm-hmm. where is that? Uh, it's a Christian college in Pennsylvania. Where, where is he on the theological he, yeah. spectrum? He used to teach at Westminster Theological Seminary. Dr. Newman, okay. when he was there, he said that uh, he was kind of a pretty strong in some certain doctrines. So if you were in one of his classes, you wouldn't want to be, you wouldn't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So, and then he went to Grove City, I think like four or five years ago. Gotcha. Cool. So uh, we've been doing this summer series through Exodus, and I'm going to continue that today. But to begin, I just want to throw some things out at you guys. I want to talk about discipleship a little bit more. Mm. We've talked about discipleship a lot on the podcast, and there's going to be some more of that to come in season five. Uh, Charlie's uh, book, he's going to be talking about that, right? That's the plan. Yeah. And as we think about discipleship, we've talked about how God sanctifies us, how God uses Uh, difficult situations, trials, whether that's a person or a circumstance or whatever it is. Now, I want to, as I set set up this conversation in in Exodus, I want us to think through how we respond to those trials. So guys, what are the ways that people respond to the trials that God brings in their lives? Run, hide, fight. Run, hide, fight. Okay. And... uh, uh, and so that's kind of like all the negative. <laughs> that, that's that's what my thought went to. Was yeah, um, it was a joke. categorical distinction. Yeah. Those are those are bad. Yeah. So I don't good, know if this is intentional. If there's but, a shooter on premise. Those are good advices. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's a trial, it's bad advice. So I tend, and I, I got this from my previous pastor. I tend to call those reactions. Oh, that's good. And mm-hmm. a positive thing would be a response. It's like one is more thoughtful mm-hmm. and initiative to it, like has a will to it. Like not that you sin unwillfully, but like a, one is like the reaction of the flesh and one is a, a like a, a response mm-hmm. in the spirit. Like I think that those yeah. contrasting terms are helpful. I think uh, I was going to say meditate, but actually I'm going to shift the word to consider. Ooh. The Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that's what. Ra, ra, eh, consider. Eh, that, I, oh, that's so good. <laughs> but but I will say that there are times where a trial hits my life and I'm reacting, like you said. That's mm-hmm. a really good word because I haven't given it any thought. And then through circumstances, the Lord makes me. Oh, okay. I hold on. What's going on? What do I want? And then it's more of a considering, thinking, reckoning. So that would be like a meditating. I think, I think there's a, a place we get to that I often neglect. Which is, I think, I think James four, one, two, and three, yeah, gives me a very clear, mm. like, understanding of what happens every time. Like when I have a desire that is not met, uh-huh. my flesh will react. Yep. yep. And then that reaction. All right. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you're thinking about it and you're, uh, you know, you're considering it, and then you're you're like, okay. And then, like, I know what I need to do. And then what do you have to do, James 4? Humble yourself. You humble yourself. yourself, Okay. And -hmm. you admit, and you might need Mm -hmm. to go through some confession, repentance, cleansing. Okay, this is the kind of stuff that we talk about. Yeah. Now, what about when you recognize and you consider 
and then you don't. Oh, well, well, that I would know. be rebellion, I suppose. Yeah. Like hard heartedness. What do we call that? Yeah. What do we call that? Obstinacy. So what I think, so I'll, I'll use new Testament terms because I know where you're going to go. But so I think, is it Galatians that talks about, I don't think it's Galatians, but like a calloused conscience. Ephesians four. Conscience. Thank you. Ephesians four there. So it's, it's they the become idea callous. that, you know, when you, mm-hmm. see, I do this all the time. I cook in a cast iron pan. You put what is soft, the meat on the cast iron. Mm-hmm. You want to do it really hot, so it forms oh. a crust on the outside. It just holds it all in there. Yeah, but it hardens the that that's the searing. The mm-hmm. point is to harden the crust, and I think what happens that searing is when you see and you don't humble yourself. You mm-hmm. actually are in pride, hardening yourself. Like you're callousing, searing your heart, your conscience, your mm-hmm. mind. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think there's a cumulative effect of that. Okay, that's where I was going to go next. So now what happens when God brings that trial or situation into your life again? And then what do you do? You don't humble yourself. You respond negatively and yeah. you harden. Yeah, well, and I th- you mentioned Ephesians 4, Andy. He actually talks about it there. Yeah, actually. The progression. Mm-hmm. Um, the heart is They hardened. have become callous. Yes. And before that, the hardness of their heart, mm-hmm. they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So they have a hard heart. They don't respond the right way. Mm-hmm. They actually progress. Um, and he says this in verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And it's like the, the, they're, mm-hmm. it will corrupt. It will can progress in its corruption mm-hmm. if you're not renewing the mind properly so then god brings a trial again into your life yep and again into your life and again into your life well and you harden and you harden and you harden there is a sin unto death Mm -hmm. and you harden and you harden and you harden now who is hardening that heart okay exodus chapter four Man, you just set the table really well for that. So Exodus 4, we have this first terminology, this first mention of a hardening of a heart. And this is, by the way, this is, this is, I would still call this the idea stage in my head. Okay. So I'm going to share something that's an idea that I think is correct. And if I, I might end up changing my view, just remember this is a podcast and this is a time when we kind of banter some ideas around. I think this is right. Um, but follow along. Listener, you need to do this with your friends too, though. That this is how this works. Right. You get an idea, you share it, right? You figure it out. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. So people see this hardening of Pharaoh's heart and they they accuse God of this injustice. Uh, how can God harden Pharaoh's heart? As you study through Exodus, I would encourage you, if you wanted to study this out, you could work through all of these references to the hardening of the heart. And there's an interesting progression. I'm going to kind of share that with you uh, here in this episode. In Exodus 7, verse 13, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. So you have this correspondence between Pharaoh hardening his heart and the Lord saying, guess what? He's going to harden his heart. But it's Pharaoh's heart that's growing hard 
in Exodus chapter 7. By the way, this is after Aaron's miraculous rod. It turns into a snake and the magicians, his magicians do the same thing. Now then in uh, Exodus seven fourteen, So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Okay, what is it that's going on here? Think through discipleship, think through trials. God brings a trial into your life and that's an opportunity that you have to humble yourself and submit or you can lift yourself up in pride and harden your heart against God. Okay, verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. He's lifted himself up in pride against God. Okay, this is Pharaoh. This is what Pharaoh wants. Uh, now then in verse 22, then the magicians of Egypt did the same. This is the um, water turning into the water, the Nile turning into blood. Okay, verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Okay, Pharaoh hardens his heart against the Lord and refuses to let the children of Israel go. As we continue, we move to chapter 8 and verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, okay, so this is after God has mercy on the Egyptians. Uh, so Pharaoh's like, there's relief. Then what does he do? He hardens his heart mm -hmm. and does not heed them. Okay, so God brings a trial into his life. He says, okay, I'm going to go in the right path. This is like a uh, presumed humility. Uh, and then God gives relief and there's the mercy of God. But then Pharaoh hardens his heart and he refuses to submit to the the hand, uh, the, the finger of the Lord. Okay, we get the third plague in um, chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. And in verse 19, the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Okay, this is when the, the magicians aren't able to do it. And then the narrator says, but Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them. See, so no longer can the magicians or any of Pharaoh's wonder workers, they can't compete with God. And they're like, this is the finger of God. And, and if the finger of God is coming down on you, then what should you probably do? Humble yourself and submit before the Lord. But Pharaoh, he hardens his heart. That humility is not in this man. Then in chapter 8, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. This is after the, fifth, the fourth plague with the flies. So he hardens his heart. Uh, then uh, in the fifth plague, chapter 9 and verse 7, Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. So now there's this distinction between the plagues to Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the plagues to um, uh, the children of Israel. And what does it say? The heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. For the first time since chapter 4, in the sixth plague, in verse 12, it states, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them. Okay, so that's the first time where it says the Lord has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now I'm continuing into the seventh plague in chapter 9, verse 34. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So it's not just Pharaoh, it's even the servants. And they trick God, presumably, and they harden their hearts because they're fighting and they're lifted up in pride against the Lord. Then this is the transition point, okay? In chapter 10, 
Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. Now, wait a minute. What did it say throughout that entire section? Well, except for the one time, what did it say all the way through? Pharaoh had been hardening his heart. Pharaoh was hardening his heart. You see, it's a matter of perspective. It's like looking at a coin from two different sides. Pharaoh is hardening his heart. Well, what is God doing that brings that hardening? He's giving trials. He's giving trials. Hmm. And when a trial comes, what does it, what should it hopefully do? If you respond correctly, you respond in humility and you draw close to God. But if you refuse, then what do you, what does it do? It hardens your heart. And so it's like God hardening the heart. So then here, so I'm going to start at verse one again. I want to look through this. Now the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants that I may show these signs of mine before him and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son, the mighty things I have done in Egypt and in my signs, which I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And we talked about that phrase, I am the Lord in the last uh, time that we were in the ex in Exodus. Okay, so you can see it's like this whole time actually is God hardening his heart. God knows omnisciently how you will respond to that trial. But he gives you an opportunity. Will you respond in humility or will you respond in pride? And will you harden your heart? And after you harden your heart, it gets uglier and uglier and uglier. And after this point, Pharaoh never hardens his heart. It states Every single time, every time it mentions the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's the Lord that hardens his heart. You see, from man's perspective, it looks like we're in control and we're hardening our heart and we can handle this. We've got this. I can beat the system. I can beat the wisdom of God. I can, I'm a Pharaoh. I mean, it's literally like a competition between him and the Lord. It's like, I can beat the Lord. But what is God really doing? Okay, think about this. What does is, what is Pharaoh do? He's like, oh yeah, okay, I'll let the people go. And then God has mercy and stops whatever the disaster is. And then Pharaoh's like, psych, I'm not letting them go. Okay. And he does that twice. You know, who, is, who is Pharaoh pretending to be? He's like the trickster. He's like the guy that's going to get God. Okay. But that's the... That's the, and, and here in chapter 10, verse two, that's, that's like the, the big play because who's really getting tricked? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's really getting tricked. He <laughs> thinks that he's tricking God, but he's actually the one that's being played with. He thinks he's God and he's the one that's in control, but he's not. The true God is the one that's really in control. And God explains that in actually chapter 10, verse 2. And he says that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons, the mighty things. That word for mighty things is like to play a trick on. Hmm. And here, Pharaoh, thinking he's playing a trick on God, is actually getting tricked by God. And that's why at this point in the Exodus, you no longer have Pharaoh hardening his heart, which was happening all the way through. You have God hardening Pharaoh's heart by bringing another trial and another trial and another trial. So in chapter 10 and verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. In chapter 10, verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. In chapter 11 and verse 10, so Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart 
and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. The omniscient God, he knows whether or not you will or will not harden your heart. And with Pharaoh, he continued to harden his heart, even after the death of the firstborn. In chapter 14 and verse 4, Then I will harden the Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them and will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all the army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And how does God harden Pharaoh's heart in this last time in his pursuit? Because he sends Israel on this random route. In chapter 14, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Peharath, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. This makes no sense, that they would go to this destination. And Pharaoh deduces they're lost. They don't know what in the world that they're doing. Guess what they need? They need me. We need to go get them and bring them back. And what is God doing? Setting a trap. He's setting a trap. In chapter 14, verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And he went out after them. So, that's... uh, that's how I'm going to conclude our discussion, our studies in the book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? Well, this is the Lord, and he will do what he desires. His will will be accomplished. And I would encourage you to evaluate your life and to think through, you know what? Is there some area in my life that I'm hardening my heart? God is using trials to provoke, um, provoke, but, but to, to make me think about my desires and what I want. Uh, don't be like Pharaoh. Um, repent. Anyway, I should have asked you guys, do you guys have anything? No, I don't think so. I think that the idea of humility was really jumping out as you were speaking. And I think today, especially in our culture, humility is a, a it's not like a needed thing. It's, it's, you know, arrogance and pride. As long as you can back it up, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, obstinacy. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me what to do. I mean, all that is just woven into our cultural air. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good needed correction and mm-hmm. reproof to that kind of thinking. Yeah. I have a handful of thoughts, three, oh. three thoughts. So one, you right at the end there, you said he provokes and you're like, well, not provokes. Well, I think you do get into this discussion of like, well, how in the world is God is he causing this guy to rebel? You know, you get into a theological issue. James addresses this. God is not tempted by evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He allows it in his sovereignty, but he is not the cause of sin. Like, the, so if you want to think that through, James 1 talks about, you know, he is not tempted by evil. We are drawn away as our desires are off. We are enticed by sinful action and we we take it now does god orchestrate opportunity and does that make him culpable well we would say it doesn't make him culpable but he does sovereignly allow testing right and there's a reason he does that and i think the answer is in not only in deuteronomy but it's also in first peter tested genuine faith is precious Mm -hmm. and god does it because he loves you enough Mm to produce in you what is most pleasing to him. Mm-hmm. And that gets me to the next point. It's like, well, God, God isn't accomplishing this. Like we watch people and they never grow or Pharaoh hardens and hardens and hardens. And, mm-hmm. you know, well, 
God, if God wants to do this, why isn't he doing it? And think of Philippians one, you know, he will complete this work. Mm-hmm. And I actually go back in my mind to a chapel message that Andy preached a long time ago. What is the scope mm. of sanctification? Mm. We can never define sanctification's goal and scope in this life mm-hmm. because it's an eternal endeavor. Actually, the moment you die, he completes it. Mm-hmm. So even if you fail and fail and fail and harden and harden and harden, and you do die as a result of your own sin, even in that, as God is allowing your heart to harden, he is progressing you towards perfect sanctification Mm. as a believer where you could die because of your sin. And then now you are perfect. Mm -hmm. Like he takes you home and you are sanctified completely. Mm. So like thinking of the scope of sanctification at its final conclusion, which is eternity in heaven. And I just thought one other thing, is there's a parallel character. There's, you see these things happen all throughout the scriptures because this is the way God works in people's lives. There's another really famous Old Testament character, Old Testament character, I said that right, who hardens himself, but then humbles himself. Yeah. Who am I thinking of? Could be a lot, but I'm thinking Manasseh. Ooh, I wasn't thinking of that. Okay. I was thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. Oh yeah, that uh He's like Pharaoh. He's a he's a king, mm-hmm. a leader mm-hmm. of this nation. He's got all the power and I mean, he is interacting with Daniel and mm-hmm. like clearly seeing the miraculous work of God and it's puffing him up. Mm-hmm. And God is trying to humble him. And he's even warned like, dude, if you do this, like you're going down. And he becomes like a beast. Mm-hmm. But then he looks to heaven. And he realizes like, where he is in hmm. the place, where he is in the system. And so there's there's a hardening and then there's a genuine, I think, a genuine humbling mm-hmm. of Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, but you see this all throughout the Old Testament, mm-hmm. all throughout the Old Testament. And, and, and I think it's sprinkled in the New Testament uh, as a means of sanctification. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so my mind, as you were talking, I, my mind popped to Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. And it's like, man, he he went through that too. But anyway, that's good stuff. Great. <laughs> oh, I guess I should say something. <laughs> you don't have to. We can just be done. What What's the, what do you want the listener to walk away? What's the spiritual imperative? I want them to examine their heart and the trials that God's brought into their lives and then submit to the work of God in their lives. Um, don't lift yourself up in pride and resist him. Humble yourself and, under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.